Hello. This week on the podcast, we're going to take a week to answer some of your questions about the Nicene Creed and the subject of orthodoxy. You ready to nerd out a little bit on some theology now? Yeah, I think this might be a little bit more fun for us than for the listener. But yeah, <laughs> this is going to be a total nerd fest as we dive into some follow-up questions we've received about the Nicene Creed. It should be a lot of fun. Oh, and I want to mention uh, we have an email in place for people to send in questions. Oh, if that's right. If there's something that they've heard on the weekend's messages or on this podcast, shoot us an email at podcast at autumnridgechurch.org, and we'd love to answer your question directly. This episode today is the result of some questions that have arisen out of the messages that you gave on orthodoxy Mm -hmm. and the Nicene Creed that featured prominently in the two sermons of our sacred series. Mm -hmm. And uh, and there were some points of either confusion or... um, or, or, or things that, that came out of that that we thought it would be fun to, to talk about a little bit more deeply. You've got the funniest little twinkle in your eye right now. I can tell you're excited. I, just, I, lo- <laughs> I love this. I don't know if it's going to be interesting to anybody else. If this is just going to be beneficial to me alone. Uh, I do want to jump in uh, to this topic by acknowledging this. Even though we've emphasized the Nicene Creed uh, in this uh, sacred series, we emphasized it big time uh, last year as well. We are not discounting the Apostles' Creed. I would imagine uh, that next year, when we do the sacred series, the Apostles' Creed will have a stronger showing, and it's even going to show up a little bit in uh, our message series on First Peter that's going to happen uh, in the winter months of 2023. Uh, so if you if you care about the Apostles' Creed, it will be showing up in the future. <laughs> but right now, we're just focusing on, on 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 the Nicene Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. They share a lot in common. In mm. some ways, it almost sounds like one is quoting uh, the other, and I think that's a I think that's incredibly encouraging. But some of the questions that we've got is. Uh, that, that that I've received is, okay, all right, <laughs> what are we supposed to do with what the Nicene Creed has to say about baptism? Mm-hmm. And and uh, somebody cornered me in the lobby, and I don't mean that in a negative way. They just, they just came out like, all right, I got a question about this. This is bothering me uh, a, a little bit. It seems like the Nicene Creed is saying um, that we should, uh, that we have to be baptized to be saved. Is that true? Uh, and so let's, let's answer that first, but would it well, be- Because a- it talks about one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. That's right. And so I totally understandable that somebody would hear that and go, oh my goodness, is we're, excuse me, we're the, we're the writers of the Nicene Creed saying that, well, we have to be baptized to be saved, but what about the, the thief on the cross or is it is it baptism? To save? I mean, what are we supposed to do with that? First thing I just want to acknowledge is that the writers of the Nicene Creed were actually quoting uh, the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2, Verse thirty-eight. Peter uh, is it's recorded uh, by by Luke that that Peter said this: "Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." So the Nicene fathers they are simply quoting scripture. It is not their intent to communicate that the act of baptism is what saves you; that there's something special or even sacred about the water and what it does. What it is, it's it's symbolizing 
that we are saying to Jesus, I trust in you, I identify with your death, and I'm dying to my old way of life, that my only hope is in the resurrection that you give, and I come up out of the water as a way to publicly uh, represent that I am in you and in the new life that you give, and I'm going to live for you for the rest of my life. When you read um, First Peter, especially First Peter chapter 3, I want to say verse 21, Peter writes about uh, baptism as kind of like a pledge. It's, I'm saying that I'm trusting in Christ. And that is what the that's what the writers of the Nicene Creed were trying to communicate. They weren't saying you have to be baptized to be saved, or the act of baptism saves you. We have to remember this, that in the in the, in the first church, when when these people were, were gathering together, when they're preaching, and it's like very first, it's open air preaching, and large crowds of people are coming and responding. They didn't do what in the church world we sometimes call altar calls. Mm. Peter and others didn't say, hey, I want to ask everyone to uh, close your eyes and bow your heads, and if you want to follow Jesus, raise your hand. Yes, I see that hand there in the back. (laughs) They didn't do that. They didn't ask people to come down to the front. They said, if you want to follow Jesus, get baptized. Mm. And so people just would immediately go and get get baptized. We see uh, Philly... uh, (laughs) I was combining Philip and Ethiopian at the same time. (laughs) Philithopian? Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, he's explaining the book of Isaiah to him and who Jesus is and how Jesus fulfills uh, the prophecy. And they're just riding along in this chariot and they come across some water and Philip says, hey, there's water right here. What's preventing you from getting baptized? I.e., what is preventing you from saying right now, Jesus, I trust in you. Mm -hmm. My life is yours. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's important to remember. It is not it's not actually getting dunked or some other mode of baptism. It's not the act itself. It's what's represented. Jesus, I trust in you. Mm-hmm. Is that did did I make that murkier? Or does that feel no, 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 a little I, bit more clear? No, I think it's clearer. I I recall in in seminary talking about some of these creeds. I remember a professor saying that the creeds were written specifically to address the contemporary confusions of the day. Yes, and and the big issue at the time of the Nicene Creed was more centered on Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and an issue like baptism wasn't a hot topic that That's they right. were wrestling through. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's kind of encouraging to realize that there's been hot topics in theology for every generation, and there continues to be to this day. And so what we might write mm-hmm. in, a, in a creed might focus in a slightly different area. I really appreciate you bringing that up, because one of the things that I've referenced a couple of times in this series, there's the 325 AD version, and there's the 381 mm-hmm. AD version. The reason that there are two different versions is not because... Later, they said, man, we got it wrong and we need to get it right. There was another question that that, that the, that the uh, editors of the Nicene Creed said, well, this is now a question that's pressing. What is it that we believe about the Holy Spirit? We don't feel like we said enough mm-hmm. originally. And so more language was added. Nothing was... Nothing was taken away originally, just added language to affirm the person, mm-hmm. the third person of the Trinity, the, the Holy Spirit. And, and the reason I wanted to pause and emphasize that, there's a recent uh, study that came out, the State of Theology Report. Mm. I believe it was put together by Ligonier Ministries yep, and, and Lifeway mm-hmm. Research. And this is what we learned, that basically 73% of uh, evangelicals in the United States are Arians. They don't agree <laughs> with the Nicene Creed. They believe that Jesus is the uh, first and greatest thing that God created false. (laughs) Jesus is eternally the second member of the Trinity. And then also equally troubling is that the Holy Spirit is viewed as a force and not as a person. Mm -hmm. And the Holy Spirit is a person. 
not a force. As the third member of the Trinity, God is one in being, three in persons, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's important to pause and talk about these things and nerd out a little bit to understand the substance of our faith and who it is that we're actually trusting in. So let's talk about uh, Arians a little bit more. And to be completely clear, mm-hmm. this is people who are are uh, following the heresy of Arius. Yes. <laughs> this is not a racial comment that you just made. <laughs> That's right. This is. Um, Did I say it wrong? No, no, you just said they're Arians, but that could be understood incorrectly. So this is that's right. Arianism, A-R-A-A-A-R-I-A. yes, yeah, A R I A. That's right. We're not talking about <laughs> we're not talking about pre World War II Germany. Yes, that's thank right. you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so the the why don't you explain the the heresy of Arius for for all of those who maybe uh, aren't wearing leather arm patches and, okay, and so, sitting around geeking on one thousand page long. Theology That's text. right. He wasn't a brown shirt or anything like that. What he was uh, was a was a was a leader uh, in, in a church, and he taught that there uh, was a time that Jesus did not exist. That he is the first and greatest thing uh, that God the Father ever created, and he was able uh, to convince a handful of people to uh, to agree with him. He actually took uh, two of his disciples with him, two buddies, uh, to the Council of Nicaea. That uh, that met there and eventually uh, drafted this creed in AD uh, 325, and out of hundreds of bishops and pastors and church leaders who were there, uh, only three people disagreed with what the Nicene Creed said. It was Arius and his two buddies. Everybody mm-hmm. else was unanimous in in their approval of the Nicene Creed and denying what Arius was teaching. And Arius is kind of famous kind of anthem was there was when he was not trying to talk about that Jesus was created and that is absolutely false. Uh, John uh, tells us in, in John 1:1 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In Revelation we discover that it's Jesus who is saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the one who was dead and was resurrected. I mean there never was when Jesus wasn't. He is an eternal uh, member of of the Godhead. He is the mm-hmm. second person of the Trinity, eternally emanating uh, from the Father. And and I know that that adds some confusion. And this is probably the hardest. Not probably. This is definitely the hardest concept of biblical Christianity, of the historic Orthodox faith, the understanding that God is a Trinity, that He is one mm-hmm. in being, three in persons. How do we how do we understand that? How do we wrap our minds around that? I don't know that it's totally comprehensible, but that doesn't mean that it's contradictory. Mm-hmm. The fact that we sometimes find ourselves confused doesn't mean that it's incoherent. The fact that it's complex and difficult doesn't mean that it's not true. Mm-hmm. It's possible that people have come either out of a different religious expression that mm-hmm. truly does teach that, like yes. Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or talk Oneness about Pentecostalism. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that he was a created being. That's right. So that may have been in someone's background. Well, Oneness Pentecostal doesn't mean that that Jesus was created, but denies the Trinity. Mm-hmm. I just want to add that bit of clarity there. But even if you haven't been someone who's come in, come out of a different religious background that that taught things differently that way. Mm-hmm. 
I think if you haven't understood or been been taught this theology before, it makes sense that you could go there when you see all the stories at Christmas time of Jesus being born. It That's seems right. like he has a clear beginning there. Absolutely. And so what we're talking about there is the incarnation. It wasn't when Jesus began to exist. It's when God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, took on humanity. Mm-hmm. Can we just pause for a second and, and just take a moment to read the Nicene Creed and then let's 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 tease out a few of these things. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic, which means universal, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Mm. And so uh, the incarnation is uh, is addressed here in the Nicene Creed. It would be one of the non-negotiables of the faith, that if we denied it, we are outside of, of orthodoxy, and even the virgin birth is included in that. If you deny the virgin birth, that belief, that assertion would be outside of orthodoxy. All of these things are incredibly, incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so understanding that God is a trinity, even if you can't fully articulate it, that's okay. But if you understand that God is one in being and three in persons, and being and persons are not synonyms. They are different. Being is what you are. Person is who you are. Mm. Um, God is one in being, three in person. So, so we, we hear that and people think, but, but isn't it always one in one? One being and one person, the math is always the same, right? I would say that's actually that's actually not true. A tree is a living thing. It's a living, it's a living being, but it doesn't have personhood. So it would be <laughs> one and zero. Um People, you and I, one in being, one in personhood. Dog, one in being, one in personhood. Cat, one in being, no personhood. And cat. <laughs> nice. <laughs> right? So it is not contradictory to say that God is one in being and three in persons. It would be contradictory to say that God is one in being and three in being, or one in person and three in person. One in being, three in person. Mm-hmm. We have to understand that being a person are different uh, different different things altogether. Mm-hmm. It can be of the same material, the same substance, the same yeah. essence, but still have a different role that they all play within the Godhead. Yeah, that's right. A different, uh, yeah, absolutely. And so the, you just used the word substance. And if you were to read uh, the Nicene Creed in the original language in Greek, talking about one in substance, it's an important term in Greek, homoousis, which means same substance. And the question was, is it, Homoi, is it homoousis or homoousis? Homoi is similar, homo is same, and they were absolutely uh, resolved and unanimous in their agreement. No, Jesus is the same substance of the Father. He's not like God. He's not similar to God. He is 
co-essential. Um, what is essential to being God, Jesus is. And then when he took on humanity, what is essential to being human, that is what uh, that is what Jesus took on, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm dipping into something a little bit in the, in the future after 325 AD by using the term coessential. But he's one in substance uh, with the Father, and it's interesting here uh, for us to look at the metaphor they use, uh, light of light. Yeah, explain that one. Yeah, it it's um, in the it. This is a toughie, but it's what they're intentionally not saying is Jesus is like light and the Father is the Son. The Father is light and Jesus is light. They are the exact same thing. You can't, in substance, they're the exact same thing in substance. You can't say one is utterly different from the other in substance. They're the exact same substance. And that's the metaphor they're they're trying to use. The problem is um, in using any sort of metaphor for... for um, describing the Trinity, it, they always fall short. And so this isn't necessarily using a metaphor to describe the Trinity, it's using a metaphor to describe substance, that they're the exact same in substance. When people say, well, the Trinity is kind of like an egg, you know? Um, mm. Nope, nope, that works. That 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 doesn't work, that falls short. Like shell and egg whites and yolk, That's but they're right. all one egg. That's right. Mm-hmm. There are three distinct things, right? Uh, but but Trinity is, is one in being, three in personhood, and, and, and the egg illustration doesn't work for that. Or sometimes people say, well, it's kind of like water. Water can sometimes be gas, it can sometimes be a solid, or it can be a liquid. Well, that's that's not the Trinity. That's saying, that would be equivalent to God is sometimes Father, sometimes Son, sometimes Holy Spirit. The Trinity is God is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one of being three in persons. So there is no metaphor that we can point to. There's no thing where we could say, well, the Trinity is kind of like that. The Godhead is utterly unique. Mm-hmm. So by definition, there are no metaphors. And there's kind of some beauty use. in that, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we established that the the creed was written to address one of the controversies of the day to help people. The big question is what do we believe about Jesus? About yeah. Jesus. Yeah. yeah. And and reading through it, it is disproportionately about Jesus. Absolutely. But I want to ask you about some things that feel like they're missing. Okay. From the creed, mm-hmm. um, and I think that relates to some of the questions that oh, yeah. that you got in response to this, because we're holding up the Nicene Creed as an example of what we can point to as the essentials of the Christian faith, as mm-hmm. orthodoxy, and yet there's not a whole lot in here about things like creation or the fall or even uh, the scripture. Um, why why do we not see as much about some of these areas of essentials? than we might expect to see. Yeah. Um, well, number one, creation is specifically indra- addressed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. That God is the one who created. That he is behind it. Um, that is absolutely affirmed. Believing in creation is indispensable or it is a non-negotiable of orthodoxy. How God went about it is not. Mm-hmm. And I know that that there are some of us, we really want to know. Mm-hmm. We, we, well, tell me how. Genesis isn't written to, to answer the how. It's primarily uh, written to describe the who. Mm-hmm. This is who did it. Uh, secondarily, why, the how is not at all, is not at all addressed. Mm-hmm. And is there a lesson in that for us there? Do you think that that's a, a good thing for us to hang our hats on, that that knowing exactly how it happened is not an essential of the Christian faith? Believing that God was the creator is what is essential? 
Well, I think taking Genesis 1 and 2 very seriously should inspire humility. Um, and it's interesting that, uh, that the word humility uh, it finds its etymology in from the earth. And we are, and God, mm. you know, uh, formed Adam from from the dust of the ground and breathed life into him. That humility is an essential response of what it means uh, to be to be human, and recognizing that we are not the authority that that God is, and there is much that we can know about Him, but we cannot utterly comprehend them, comprehend Him. And if God was utterly uh, comprehensible by uh, by me, He would be too small. And so this is not undercutting trying to study and understand. This is not minimizing the pursuit of truth. This is just recognizing that God is beyond the capacity of, of, of our thought. And so let's respond with humility. I think that's really the, the most important thing. He is the one who did it, and he tells us why. He doesn't explain to us how. As a matter of fact, in a time of intense suffering and getting to have a one-on-one conversation uh, with God that, as you read about it, seems rather scary... But when Job brings his charges or his intense questions to God, God says, um, where were you when I did these <laughs> things? Surely, surely, surely you understand. Explain it to me. Mm-hmm. And part of the implication of that is that we don't fully understand and only only he does. So let's respond with let's respond with humility and trust. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to creation, don't make the how a part of orthodoxy. Make the who part of orthodoxy. God is the creator and the universe and all that is in it exists because of him. That's what's orthodox. The how is not. Mm-hmm. So how about the fall? The fall is implied. The The, the fall isn't isn't talked about. Uh, the, the fall is implied. Otherwise, why would Jesus come for us men and our salvation? It's because we're, it's because we're in sin. It's implied, though not explicitly though not explicitly stated. And let's remember this. This is not a treatise on all of theology and on all of the Bible, but the non-negotiables. The non-negotiable that's included in this is that we need we need a Savior. As you dig in uh, to Scripture and you read about the fall, you understand uh, why sin is here and why we are all um, in bondage to it. Mm-hmm. So Scripture is mentioned mm-hmm. in the Nicene Creed. On the third day, he rose again, according to the Scriptures. And then there's some other references about uh, following the apostles later that uh, that shed some more light on that. But Scripture is essential in the, particularly in the evangelical church, but in in Protestant churches across the board. And uh, and you'd think that there would be more in here about believing in the authority of Scripture, mm-hmm. uh, the inerrancy, you know, b- believing that Scripture is written without errors, at least in in its original manuscripts. Yeah. Um, does it surprise you that there's not more said about Scripture in this creed? No, it doesn't. It doesn't doesn't surprise me at all. I think it's strongly implied, and uh, and I when I say implied, I don't mean it's this thing where you kind of have to squint and read between the lines and and make a uh, make a speculative case for its existence. I mean, it is strongly Im- Im- implied. He suffered and was buried, and on the third day rose again, according to the scriptures. Uh, you're not going to find anything like inerrancy uh, in the debate at this time. But what you're going to find is common uh, agreement that scriptures are authoritative and inspired. We wrestle, uh, when I say we, I mean evangelicals of recent history, over terms like inerrancy. They were affirming uh, authority and inspiration. 
And you see that here. The Holy Spirit spoke by the prophets. He inspired the the prophets. Everything that they are writing here is recorded and is recorded in scripture. Every all the information they got about Jesus comes from scripture and it talks about we are an apostolic church. That one holy catholic apostolic church we are under the authority of the apostles that is more than a subtle nod to the authority of what the apostles wrote in 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 the new testament and so taking the nicene creed seriously means that we have to place ourselves underneath the authority of God's written word. Um, although things like inerrancy, you're right, they're not explicitly stated. Authority and inspiration of scripture come jumping off the page when you read the Nicene Creed. Well, I've enjoyed this uh, the sacred series this year and the opportunity to explore matters of orthodoxy a little bit more and particularly to spend some time in the Nicene Creed. Mm-hmm. Anything uh, else that you would like to say before this uh, series kind of begins to, to wrap up and we shift gears towards what's coming up ahead? No, I, I appreciate the kind things that you said. I've enjoyed preaching it. I love going back and, and, and looking at some of these things and seeing what has united all believers across time, around the world, and across denominational lines. It's no secret that Christians disagree on all kinds of things. That's okay. We should not be troubled by that. I think we should pause and be amazed at the astonishing unity that we have, and you find that unity represented in some summarized well of the Nicene Creed, whether you're going to read the AD 325 version or AD 381. Mm. So I'm going to give a little bit of a teaser mm-hmm. for what's coming up ahead, Okay, because we've been focused on matters of orthodoxy. That's right. And uh, and people who heard the, the first sermon in this two-week series heard you say something that was maybe a little bit provocative about some things that threaten our unity and yeah. threaten... Two things, mm-hmm. prosperity gospel and Christian nationalism. And so next week on the podcast, we're going to tackle Christian nationalism. Mm, Okay. I look forward to it. Mm.